everyone and welcome to this week's episode. Wow, I just saw how loud that was. <laughs> um, Apparently I need to speak louder. Oh my gosh, we're very loud. Um, <laughs> welcome to this week's episode of Two Lips, One Bike. Um, just a bit of a warning about this episode. We're going to be dealing with some pretty rough um, issues and confronting cases of sexual assault. So if that's not, um, that might be triggering for you, then perhaps switch to one of our other lighter episodes. So what has been happening this week? Uh, so there was a Four Corners episode that aired earlier this week with, I feel terrible because I've forgotten her name. Saxon. Um, Saxon, who um, was the victim of a rape, alleged rape, depending on, I suppose, how you look at it. Well, he was convicted of it, wasn't he? It was appealed a few times. and It was. So it was. he was found guilty in the first instance. Mm-hmm. And then he appealed successfully and then that conviction was overturned and then subsequently the DPP appealed that decision and it was found that he was guilty but what that it wasn't worth actually expending the time and resources and money into another trial given the time he'd already served in prison. Which was about five years. Yeah. Right. It's um I think it set off a really interesting conversation about consent in Australia mm. because um this Four Corners report and to New South Wales um you know credit has triggered immediate calls for some law reform in that space. Mm. So from our understanding, so what what was the appeal based on? They thought that Luke Lazarus did hold. Yeah, so he was making the argument that um, he had both an honest and a reasonable belief that Saxon had consented to the act that took place. Mm, because she didn't do anything. Yeah, because she didn't say or do anything to indicate that she did not consent. So she was incredibly intoxicated when this happened. Yes. And she, this was like in the middle of the morning. Yeah, so she was 18 at the time. I think there's mention of the fact that um, she had been drinking throughout the night, that she hadn't had penetrative sex before. She showed up at this club and then somewhere in the early hours of the morning she was approached by Luke Lazarus who uh, said that you know he wanted to take her to some VIP area in this club and instead took her out into an alleyway. And then what happened subsequently is you know contested between both. But it ended up in him anally penetrating her. Mm. And I guess um, I didn't realise this about New South Wales uh, rape laws, but their consent, their fault um, element in in the offence of rape is quite different to what we've got here in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see that they are trying to make moves towards what we have. And I guess in that sense we've taken for granted because when I was learning about um, sexual assault um, in law school and the it's always been there's always been those you know I think it was like nine different factors where consent is negated and one of the factors was that just because they're not saying anything or doing anything doesn't necessarily mean mm. there's no consent mm. which has appeared to be what's happened in this particular case yeah where the judge I think the, yeah, the appellate the judge, judge yeah. has taken that to be you know indicative of his reasonably held belief mm. So I'm just going to read their fault provision um, in relation to consent. So a person who has sexual intercourse with another person without the consent of the other person knows that the other person does not consent to the sexual intercourse if 
the person knows that the other person does not consent to the sexual intercourse or the person is reckless or the person has no reasonable grounds for believing that the other person consents to the sexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. I think it was that third ground that the appellate judge relied on. So that judge formed the view that, like you said, because Saxon didn't say or do anything to indicate she did not consent, that, you know, there was no um, reasonable grounds grounds for him to assume that consent had not been made out. It's interesting because I would argue that's a lot more straightforward than, say, what we had in Victoria prior to 2015, which... um, I remember distinctly doing like criminal law and um, studying the Warsnop and the Queen case, mm-hmm. which involved the very confusing Section 37 AAA um, jury directions about what the jury has to be directed in relation to consent. And the fourth element back then was um, that a person commits rape if asexually penetrates another person, if the penetration is intentional if they're not consenting and if either A is aware that B is not consenting or might not be consenting or A gives no thought to the issue of consent. Mm -hmm. And this led to this like very strange anomaly in the law where one, the jury just absolutely had no idea how to interpret that and and it led to this really weird position where um, judges were giving erroneous, like Warsnop I think um, won on appeal because the judge, it was found that the the judge gave an erroneous jury direction because it had become so um, convoluted and so um, just confusing. Mm. And um, it led to this very strange provision where it, it found, worse not, the effect of it was that a jury cannot convict for rape if they find there is a reasonable possibility that the accused held an honest belief in consent Um, And this could be unreasonable or mistaken, Mm. which doesn't sound consistent. And even as I'm I'm talking about it now, I'm getting so confused. I don't actually know what I'm starting out. Well, even before we started recording this, we were like, you know, reading extensively. Yeah, trying to make sense of this fault element in the different jurisdictions. And I think that's really part of the problem. It's just so confusing and convoluted for us professionally trained lawyers can you imagine being in a jury pool and trying to make sense of this well post 2015 our fault um element has now been changed to um it will be sexual assault if um b does not consent to the touching and a does not reasonably believe that b consents to the touching so it's been sort of distilled back down to that right um, and as we were discussing before we started, um, of this second element, the second um, one that I mentioned about A not reasonably believing that B consents to the touching is a subjective test, obviously, because it's a fault element, but it has that objective overlay on mm. top of it for mm. the jury to be open to interpret, like, what would a reasonable person in that person's shoes think is reasonable? Which is really hard. Okay, so <laughs> stripping all the legal talk aside, why is the area of rape and rape law so difficult to, you know, um, specify or to pinpoint as an offence? Mm. Because there's so... Like, Saxon's case is a horrible case um, that really illustrates why consent 
is still so muddled. Yeah. And I think in the wider environment that we're in at the moment with all our sexual harassment and all that type of thing, why is consent still so difficult for, like, lawmakers to really pinpoint? I think sexual relations can be quite confused and convoluted. You know, I think many people can draw on their own experiences and you sometimes reflect on experiences you've had and you're like, hmm... I feel a bit uncomfortable about that or I feel a bit unsettled about that experience. You know, would I say that was a situation where there was consent or there wasn't consent? And sometimes it's not so straightforward. It's not like what you see in the movies where, you know, it's stranger danger and Mm. it's violent. It often tends to be a lot more insidious than that. So it's hard to sometimes pinpoint. Um, And then I think there's that additional complication where, you know, rape law is made by politicians and judges, both of whom for the most part are old white men and obviously in forming those definitions they're going to be informed by their own experiences and not, you know, assume the experiences of women when it comes to sex. Well, we had a host of law reform in the sort of latter part of the 2000s and then obviously after this string of war snob and I think there was um, a few other cases as well with this erroneous interpretation of Section 37AAA. Um, a lot of it led by things such as the Victorian Law Reform Commission and, you know, they obviously consult out in the wider sort of network. And I think I'm a bit in defence of Victorian rape laws. They're not perfect, mm. but um, definitely not perfect after what I had just read um, pre-2015. But I know that when it was drafted and perhaps part of the imperfection is because they were trying to capture so much in such a complicated area of law. Because I know what they were trying to do was to really – and Saxon touched on this point in her interview with Four Corners, which was enthusiastic consent. And I know what was one of the underlying factors of the earlier, like the 2008-ish amendments to the sexual assault um, laws in our Crimes Act – was this notion of um, the communicative model of consent, Mm. which is we don't want it to be where it's the onus is sort of put on them to sort of work out whether or not you're consenting by your behaviour. And, you know, Section 36 sets out, you know, nine circumstances where someone's not consenting and some of it is, um, you know, when someone's sleeping or alcohol affected or doing a medical procedure and it's not within the scope. And I definitely remember that case from law school. <laughs> I think we all do. It was horrible. Um, weird doctor. But, um, you know, so all of that is put a, put on the onus of, like, this defenceless person. But it's, it's rather we should be moving towards a model of consent where people are, t- are asking you, like, yeah. do you want to do this? And I know it's awkward in sexual relations mm. to be like, hey, hey, can you? do you want to sign this uh, release, this deed of release of liability <laughs> and consent to all of this? But it's a cost-benefit analysis, right? Because <laughs> if the risk of you not asking is that this person is going to be violated, then put up with the awkwardness and ask the question. Well, that's right. And I think um, Eli, my housemate, was saying this when we were talking about Aziz Ansari yeah. earlier, where it's like it's not worth the risk of being an awful person and a criminal. Mm. 
But um, it's not in our culture yet, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's it's not quite there yet where it's okay to have those conversations. Instead, we're relying on, on physical cues, which can really easily be misconstrued because, mm-hmm. you know, um, just because someone's rolled over, it's not an indication of anything. And, yeah. just, and you know, and it's, it's captured in our law where it does – say that just because someone is not saying anything doesn't necessarily mean that they are consenting. Mm-hmm. And I know like a lot of case law back in the day used to rely very heavily on that mm. to say that, um, you know, it's, that's, they're obviously consenting. Well, I think that's some of the discussion that's now being had in New South Wales. Is it worth uh, incorporating the jury direction that exists in Victoria and Tasmania where, where you specifically direct a jury that just because someone doesn't say or do something to indicate that they don't consent, mm. is that reason enough to assume that they are consent or that isn't reason enough to assume that they are consenting. So it's kind of reinforcing that communicative model of consent. Mm. Um, but that jury direction doesn't specifically exist in New South Wales. So some people have said, well, if the jury was told that, you know, just because Saxon didn't say stop or didn't push uh, Lazarus away, that just because she didn't do those things doesn't mean she then by default consented. Would that have resulted in a different outcome in the first instance? Mm. Well, it would have definitely have assisted in the case of what would have been against him because there's that reasonable steps that were taken in mm. that case. And I think the onus really should be put on, like, constantly checking what reasonable steps has the person taken to check whether or not um, someone is consenting to the act. Because in our Crimes Act, we also talk about the fact that just because you consented to the initial act, it doesn't end there. Like, you haven't discharged the obligation to obtain consent by virtue of just gaining consent at the point of entry, I suppose. Mm. Because even once you're still doing it, um, you can still withdraw consent midway through sexual intercourse. Yeah. Like, that's a thing. I think many people have been in that situation where they kind of either start off not feeling like they're really into it or in the process of, you know, being in it, you're kind of like, oh, actually, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, but then you have a lot of backward juries or judges who have said in the past that, well, you can set it, – and it's hard. I, I understand that it's difficult from that really strictly legalistic perspective to kind of know when it started and where it ended Mm -hmm. but you're judging on human nature exactly like this is not something that you can put like a strict legal interpretation on and obtain you know a very very clear-cut response it's Mm -hmm. always just going to be him versus her or her versus her or him Mm. versus him like you know it's always going to be um one person's word against another um, and there's usually only two witnesses there mm-hmm. who can tell you. And often they'll have such remarkably different version of events. Mm. Um, often that are honestly held by both of them. And that's the problem because yeah. if he honestly did hold the belief that she was consenting, then he's not guilty of the offence. He hasn't met. Mm. He wouldn't, like, strictly speaking, like, then that's a correct determination then. He hasn't met the fault Wait. element. In Victoria? No, no, I'm just saying, like, oh, in, in general. You just mean in yeah. general. Oh, right, okay. I think men in terms of the law. Well, not now, but yeah. back in the day, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it right. used to be very liberal back then. Mm. I mean, a bit of a comic relief bit from this whole discussion 
was that there was a um, like a child care educator or someone who child psych who went on ABC and said that you know this discussion of consent is very interesting and topical now and that really um, we should be teaching children about consent and she raised that um, you know we should be seeking consent from babies when we're putting their nappies on <laughs> and how does that work <laughs> I actually don't know because children at that age like I kind of get that she wants to introduce the notion of consent from a very young age maybe by way of like those kisses you know how like relatives love coming over and kissing right. random babies maybe that's a more constructive way of doing it rather than you know necessities like nappies Maybe starting with babies is starting at an extreme. Maybe once children are able to sort of articulate verbally or physically when they do or don't want something. Although I suppose babies can do that too in a sense. Look, I'm glad she's talked about Yeah. The I think we all agree that we need of to, consent. Yeah, and we all need to have it a lot earlier than we do. Yeah, but I just wonder if that's a bit... <laughs> uh, it's not practicable, I don't think. I think yeah. when I was a kid, I would not be consenting to any nappy changes. <laughs> but that's not to say I would have known what's best for me in that circumstance. Mm. But, you know, whatever starts the conversation, mm. um, maybe not nappies. I don't really see a clear-cut resolution to all of this though no not specifically that example i just mean in general like where to from here you know we have these sorts of high profile cases happen all the time and i'm just trying to think in terms of you know how do we make sure that something like what happened to saxon doesn't happen again it's this is going to be a cop-out answer but it's it has to be a much wider cultural change yeah Things, no, I think you're right. Things like embedding the communicative model of consent is not something you can put in law. I mean, the law can kind of, you know, be a nice little framework in which to refer to, mm. but it's it's going to be much wider than that. It has to be us entrenching that into sexual behaviours to make it acceptable mm. for you to be asking and also not for, for women to not be expecting certain things. Like I, um, women not to be expected to do certain things that they might not necessarily want to do. Right. So, like, this week I was listening to some something and they were talking about this Twitter feud that DJ Khaled had um, online because he said he's the king of his house and he gets to do whatever and get serviced in whatever way by his wife, but he'll never, like, reciprocate um, doing particular services to her. What a charm. Because it's beneath him because he's the king like you said he's the king right so he gets all that but she just has to mm-hmm. you know you can see from my <laughs> hand gestures what I'm talking about <laughs> but I guess are you saying you know uh, women shouldn't be conditioned uh, sorry conditioned to think that they need to kind of perform Give their, their services role, yeah, yeah in their relationships yeah as a try like a services to the king in Mm. in dj Khaled's case Mm. so you know um i think it's about sort of stepping empowering ourselves demanding you know having that sexual empowerment to sort of have our voices and it's not just us it's men as well men also have to be you know it goes both ways in terms of consent it's just i'm just speaking generally because it does seem like a lot of the cases do involve um female victims and male perpetrators Mm. But, you know, it goes both ways about asking for consent um, and having really open conversations about sex. Like, yeah, yeah, like I said, it doesn't have to be like a, 
a, you know, sign off a waiver every time you do it. Mm. But you should be kind of checking in every now and then to make sure. And like having those, you know, um, pinpoints in the conversation yeah. to really check in and make sure it's just respect. Mm. Isn't that what relations are? Yeah. Um, so we're going to speak about a much more... Uh, well, it's somewhat related. Actually, it's definitely related, but... Much more um... probably extreme um, <laughs> case. Yeah. I'm just opening up the article um, on my phone here. Um, so there have been a spate of really high-profile rapes in India... Um, I think we all remember that horrific gang rape that took place some years ago now on a bus in New Delhi uh, where um, a woman was out with her friend, she was coming home from the movies, got onto what she thought was a public bus and was filled with however many men mm. who then just... I mean, subjected her to the most horrific violence. I yeah, think at one point they actually, was it, um, they penetrated her with a, was it a, a pipe? A pipe, yeah. Um, and damaged her internal organs um, to the extent that she actually did eventually pass away from her injuries. And that sort of invited um, protests across the country in terms of demanding changes to, you know, the way that... Um, Indian men um, treat women Um, and again we know this is not isolated to India we've just spoken in fact about a high profile case in Australia but violence against women and girls you know sort of has its own perverse manifestations depending on what country you're in Mm. Um, but it has been just really horrific to see yet again another spate um, of these high profile cases I think the first one that I spoke to you about was the case of an eight-year-old girl Mm. in uh, the state of Kashmir who was gang-raped in a Hindu temple before being strangled to death and then having her body dumped in a forest. Um, And not only was that sort of, again, another perverse manifestation of how girls and women are often treated in India, but there was that added element of religion in the Mm, scheme of things because the victim, the eight-year-old girl, was a Muslim. Uh, The rape took place in a Hindu temple. All the alleged assailants, including a member of the governing party um, in India, were all Hindus. See, as I said to you before, this doesn't make any logical sense if they're trying to make some sort of religious statement by raping her in a Hindu temple. Yeah, I mean, what people on... Isn't that really offensive to their Oh, it's incredibly offensive to any, you know, um, well-intentioned practicing Muslim, um, not Muslim, sorry, practicing Hindu. But um, (laughs) often these things are not logical. I think um, what supporters of the victim and her family were saying was that having the offence take place in a temple was the way of these perpetrators asserting the... um, what's it called, the, um, the, you know, the fact that being Hindu is being better, like... Oh, like superiority. Yeah, superiority. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Is it kind of similar to what happened over in, like, Bosnia? Um, you mean during the war? When yeah, you know how they went around raping a lot of women? And... They did, but I don't think any of those rapes 
took place in like say you know Not, yeah but it was kind of like them um sort of put putting like asserting their superiority yeah both in terms of their gender and, and their religion yes yes um well it depends on what side of the argument you're on um i've been telling These you are pointy issues <laughs> they are very pointy issues um i have actually got to the point where i've had to block most of my extended family members on facebook because um, it was just ridiculous, some of the stuff I was reading. You know, people were just trying to excuse and minimize I'm just curious about how you can defend an eight-year-old getting raped. Uh, so, I know, for example, there have been people that have made comments that, well, why are we focusing so much on this young Muslim girl? What about all the young Hindu girls that are getting raped day in, day out? Um, which I think is a pathetic excuse, you know. I don't like all that argument terrible. because yeah. they're all terrible in their own individual right. Exactly. And we shouldn't be um, hijacking the horror of this story mm -hmm. and putting it somewhere else when they're all equally really horrible. But this is really horrible, like yeah. an eight-year-old. And, again, this is just my personal opinion, but I think that in that specific case, religion is definitely an added element of the offence, um, you know, the fact that the victim here is a young Muslim girl, the fact that all the assailants are Hindu, the fact that the offence has taken place in a Hindu temple, the fact that one of the assailants is a member of the governing right-wing Hindu nationalist party Problematic. in the state. Um, yeah. Yes, gender is definitely an issue here, but I think religion too. Um, okay, so that was the one I spoke to you about a couple of weeks ago. But you've now said that there have been a few other horrible cases. Yeah. Well, it says here, so I'm just going to read straight from this article on BBC. But it says here, A teenage girl in India has been raped and burned alive by her attacker. The third instance of such an attack in the same week. Third? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, and this particular incident was one where the victim had um, told her attacker that she was going to tell her family about the rape. And that was the point at which she was um, burnt alive. Um, and, you know, I'm at a bit of a loss um, about these incidents. Um, you know, I've already made the point that I don't think, you know, rape and sexual violence is something that's unique to India. But I definitely think that um, India does have its own problems when it comes to its treatment of... Um, girls and women and I just honestly I think you're right in terms of what you said about the Luke Lazarus case I think um, something more than the law is required to redress this I think cultural change is what's really needed because these three most recent incidents have happened um, just after the country introduced a new law yes. that imposed the death penalty mm. for people convicted of raping young girls under the age of 12 and it's had this perverse consequence where they'll kill their victims yeah. rather than let them live because that's much easier like what would they face like a jail term maybe exactly and you know maybe we know that yeah well that's true we know well, you don't have a, system if, if you don't have a victim yeah it's much harder to prove yeah because most rapes often happen in a context where the only witnesses to the incident are the victim and the perpetrator right so if the victim's dead then you've got no source of direct evidence that's implicating you in the offence. Mm. So if anything, the death penalty is only going to result in more girls and women being killed. So I'm only asking this because I know you used to do a lot of research in this area, but what makes India a bit different to other 
um, areas of the world? Uh, oh, wow. That and it's hard to question. have this conversation without sounding racist. But I think, as I said, mm. I think when you come from a particular culture, like, for instance, you know, I've got um, my background is Vietnamese and I'm Australian as well. It's important for us, I think, to be able to critique the way that our cultures do things. Mm. And I think it's it's been easy for us to critique Australian, the way that, um, you know, Australia has been quite racist in particular ways. And, and, you know, we get gunned down for being, like, ungrateful whenever we, talk, we critique about it because we're the next generation of kids and migrants. But I think the same goes in terms of being able to critique aspects of our like culture as well Mm. um i think yeah it's something i have definitely struggled with in the past because um i think people do blur the line so when you start for example reflecting on you know not particularly positive aspects of your culture you often risk being maligned a racist um as opposed to someone that's just critiquing your culture yeah Um, well i think it's just to clearly qualify what your comments are going to say <laughs> are just critiques of it. It's not intended yeah. to be. And it's just my personal opinion and my personal experience. But, um, but yeah, I'm curious because obviously like, you know, I think there are definitely a lot of factors at play in India. You know, it's still a developing country. And so it's really interesting when you go there because um, there's a lot of the old and a lot of the new. So you've still got a lot of old cultural practices at play. Mm. So, for example, um, the dowry or oh, the system yeah. of the dowry is illegal in India. So this is the practice where once um, a family um, has their daughter married um, off um, to a man, then the practice is to basically pay that man for assuming responsibility for their daughter. Kind of like buying something. Yeah, exactly. It's like a business transaction, <laughs> except it's always the woman that's paying for it, or her family specifically that's paying for it. Um, so that was something that was outlawed years ago, but it is... Um, was well, pervasive. It's entrenched it's, in culture. It is. Um, so that's just one example. Um, so you've got, yeah, old cultural practices like that in play, but then because the country is continually developing... Mm. It's also kind of being exposed, I think, to a lot of your um, Western forms of misogyny. So, for example, pornography is rampant mm. in its consumption across India. Um, and that's not to say all pornography is bad because it can be really good depending on how it's actually produced. But on the whole, we know that, you know, much of pornography is problematic and not actually, you know, um, I suppose, realistic or yeah, realistic of actual sexual experiences. You often have men dominating women and women's needs being put to the side. So I think this mix of kind of the old and the new means that the country's assumed, um, you know, all these different forms of misogyny in the one. Is that confusing the men? Oh, yeah, 100%. Because I think, um, you know, my experience um, of Indian culture and... This has been somewhat sort of narrated to me by my parents as well. Is the fact that sex is something that is not spoken about mm. at all. We talk about the fact that in Western culture, often women's sexual needs aren't spoken about, but in India, just sex in general is just something that's not discussed. Mm. Um, so that is obviously a, a real issue because. Um, you know, you've got a country of a billion people, people are having sex and having enough of it to keep procreating to that point. So 
yeah, it's something you need to kind of get good at talking about. Mm. Um, and on top of that, is there sort of still that um, sort of misogynist view of women? Um, yeah, I think I think there is, and I think parts of that are co-opted, like I said, from your older cultural practices, but mm. then also um, parts of Western culture also definitely reinforce. So that is sort of feeding into. I think so. I mean, this is just yeah, my own. Thoughts, yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people won't agree with me, but yeah, that's definitely been my own experience. And having said that, though, I should say that, um, you know, feminist movements are rampant across India as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, some of my favourite feminists, Arundhati Roy, for example, mm. um, are just so goddamn um, sort of articulate and, mm. like, outright in their advocacy. And it's honestly people like that that yeah. keep me hopeful for change coming about. In mm. India, it's um just to go back to your point about this Western culture feeding into India. Mm. Um, it's interesting because you know how last week we were talking about the rise of incels. Mm. There was this article in the Saturday paper that was combining that with talk about capitalism and how sex is now sort of fed as a capitalist thing, yes. as in they're being told from a very young age that this is something you too can have, mm. and when they're not getting it, it's the same It's the same sort of foot stamping that, like toddler foot stamping um, reaction that you get when people are sold like the Australian dream and then they don't get it. Right. It's similar in that sense because we're conditioned to think this is something we're entitled to. Yeah. Um, and when they don't get it, um, they react in very strange ways. And that's how sex is being sold to this generation of men. Yeah. And I think pornography is the more, most yeah, clear-cut example of, of yeah. that, right? Because when people watch porn – there's no chance of you being rejected, right? Like, you're going to get off on it one way or the other. Yeah. Um, and you see the woman always getting off on it, regardless of how terrible the guy uh, looks at what he's doing. I have a hilarious <laughs> story about that. One of my friends, he thought in high school yeah. that women always orgasmed in the <laughs> And it didn't take until he was about 18 to realise, no, they're paid. Oh, my God. They paid a lot thing. of money to act. <laughs> but that's what teenagers are thinking. Yeah. And so, you know, what are they meant to And I think do? women take that on board too, right? Like, I mean, you know, there's that old sort of um, joke about, you know, oh, well, that scene from that old movie uh, When Harry Met Sally yes. where, like, that woman is acting out an orgasm yeah. um, in full view of that cafe. And, um, yeah, exactly. Like, it's, it's just how we're conditioned to behave. Men are entitled. I think we spoke about this in the last podcast. We seem to recycle our themes, but men feel entitled to sex and women feel conditioned to offer it. I think this has been a pretty jam-packed episode. I know we had another topic to discuss, but... Um, How long has it been? 35 minutes. Okay. Did so, you want to do recos or do we not really have recos? I don't really have any recommendations this week, but what have you got? Can I give one reco? Okay. So, again, podcast, because that's all I do with my spare time. Um, so it's called, oh, actually, I don't remember the top of my head. It's a Radiolab produced podcast. I think it's called More Perfect. No, yes, More Perfect. And basically, What's it about? premise is that it's about, um, the Supreme Court. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The American Supreme Court. Yeah. American Supreme Court. And it's this group of like law school nerds. So people much like <laughs> us. Who, I wouldn't call myself a law school nerd. Uh, well, you might not. <laughs> Even though we just spent our Saturday night 
researching rape law as you do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's all about like your different landmark uh, Supreme Court decisions. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. Actually. It's so interesting. Like on the drive to your house, the episode I was listening to was about um, the case of. Oh my god! I'm was it Roe versus Wade? Because no, that would be a great case. To that listen to. I want to listen to that episode. It's actually one of the lesser known episodes. Um, it's I think it's Katsuma and the United States mm. is the case, and it's about this Japanese American Fred Katsuma, who is the subject of um, those internment. Right. Yeah, I was going to say internment. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's one of the most infamous decisions um, uh-huh. reached in the Supreme Court because they essentially legitimised the use of these internment camps for Japanese Americans. Was internment just pretty much um, like sectioning off? Yeah, so it started off initially um, with I suppose World more II. World War Two. So Pearl Harbor happened, mm. and initially the government responded by sort of having more piecemeal gestures. Like initially they said, "All right, all Japanese Americans need to be." Subjected to a curfew. Oh my god! Where they, yeah, where they can't be outside of um, their houses at these hours, and it also applied to Germans as oh well. Oh my god! And then it eventually progressed from having a curfew to um, not being allowed to go into particular areas, so exclusion zones where Japanese Americans and German Americans couldn't go. And then it eventually progressed to actually, you we're going to tell you where you. You go all the time. And how long did that happen for? It happened for a couple of years. So it oh happened from, God. I think, some of the people stayed up, stayed in these camps for up to three years. Oh. Um, yeah, and so this particular man challenged the constitutionality. Oh, at the time. At the time. Oh. Um, saying, you know, it's racial discrimination. Did he um, win? This, no, he lost. What? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's the US Supreme Court. True. Well, the Supreme Court agreed that what was happening was racial discrimination. But? But <laughs> they said that drastic measures are required in, ter- in times of a national emergency, yes. and this was such a time. Well, this always happens. They trot out the, um, you know, national security. Well, yeah. I mean, we saw Trump doing the same thing when, you know, he wanted to, ban. yeah, the Muslim ban and putting people on a list, so... Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just a really interesting podcast, and right, if you're into politics and law, yeah. um, you'll love it. Alright, well I've got none for this week, and we're running out of time, so hopefully we'll record another. See you everyone. Bye everyone.